Welcome to Psychedelicast. Hosted by Clinton Cayley, this show is an interview-based podcast focused on offering listeners in-depth information concerning plant medicines, entheogens, and all subjects tangential to psychedelia. Join us in prying open the third eye. Greetings and salutations, Psychedelicasters. Welcome to another episode of the show. I'm Clinton Cayley, the host of Psychedelicast. Thanks for being with us once again. Got a great chat today to uh, deliver to you with one Miss Trisha Eastman of Psychedelic Journeys. Uh, I think you're going to really enjoy this one. We had a good chat. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Trisha, and then we'll do our, our housekeeping, and we'll get into the interview. Joining us today on the show is Trisha Eastman, psychedelic pioneer, medicine woman, and author. Trisha brings a unique perspective to Psychedelicast with a discussion of African Iboga traditions, destination medicine retreats, and her own inspired story of life with the plants. She's been featured on the streaming channel Gaia's show Psychedelia. She curates medicine experiences around the world and is an initiate in the Bwiti lineage. Trisha has been featured on too many podcasts to name and has contributed writings for some of the most influential psychedelic platforms. She specializes in 5-MeO-DMT, Iboga, and psilocybin medicines. I hope you guys are ready for a fascinating chat with a fascinating lady. Before we get into that, let's get a few things out of the way as we have want to do. Let's see. Uh, join us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash psychedelicast. $3 a month gets you access to the Psychedelicast Psychonauts. A lot of exclusive content going up there, including but not limited to... Um, the video formats of these chats, um, they are only released for Psychedelicast Psychonauts. We only offer one tier at this time, $3 a month, and I think you're getting a pretty good value for your buck, pretty good bang for your buck there. Um, I do release no trip sitters there occasionally. We've also done interviews with Psychedelicast Psychonauts. If you'd like to come on the show and tell your story, uh, join us there and we will have you on the show. Those are also only released to uh, Patreon patrons. So, um, if you want to support the show, you can do that by uh, sharing us on social media, following us on social media, uh, subscribing to the podcast on your podcatcher of choice, reviewing, leaving stars, all that good stuff, or you can make a direct contribution via the Patreon uh, platform, www.patreon.com slash psychedelicast. In other news... Um, some cool things, some interesting things have uh, happened for me lately. One thing I want to tell you guys about that I'm extremely excited and honored to be involved in, um, the Woody Creeker Magazine, which is a publication, um, a digital publication curated by, uh, curated and edited by the wife of the late Hunter S. Thompson, a, a personal hero and idol of mine and a huge influence on my life and my interest in, in the psychedelic experience, to be honest. Uh, one of my favorite authors, high in the rankings, probably top five, maybe top three favorite authors of all time. Um, well, they ran a contest a few months back um, to, to find a story to feature with Ralph Stedman's new artwork, uh, Viral Menace. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Ralph Stedman, he is the illustrator, longtime collaborator of Hunter S. Thompson. He does all that, that gonzo artwork, the artwork for uh, Dogfish Head Brewery. Um, so they ran this contest asking for pieces um, 
I guess, pandemic-themed or written during the pandemic, maybe not necessarily pandemic-themed, um, which I wrote a lot while I was traveling abroad during the, the pandemic. So I, um, I submitted several stories, and I kind of forgot about it because it had been a while, and I, I kind of just you know got sidetracked and forgot that I had even done that. Well, they emailed me back a couple days ago um, to submit a, a bio and a headshot, and they've chosen one of my submissions to be printed, to be published in a special edition uh, of the magazine. It's going to be called Viral Menace, and it's going to be 100 stories um, from the pandemic era. So, I mean, this is one of the highest honors I could ever receive to be published alongside my idol. Hunter S. Thompson's been published on the on the uh, on the platform many times. Um, his wife is the editor. So, you know, this is like one degree of separation from one of the heroes of my life. So for me, that is uh, probably the high point of my creative career as far as writing goes. I've been published elsewhere. I've written some things that I really like. Um, I think I'm a good writer, but this is kind of like a, a dream come true. Um, maybe a small thing, but to me it's huge. And uh, so I'm super excited about that and honored. And I will be uh, sharing that with you guys via social media whenever it uh, takes place. Also, if you follow me on social media, and I, I told you guys about this a couple weeks ago. When I was in uh, Mexico City, my phone was stolen. Um, through the process of like securing all my information and, and uh, all the things that are connected to your phone, you know, my, my bank accounts, my social media accounts, everything was uh, linked to that device. I had to basically wipe the phone and, and secure a lot of things, change passwords. I've been unable to regain access to the Psychedelicast Facebook page. Um, it's almost impossible to get in contact with Facebook. Um, and I'm, I really don't care about my own. Like I told you guys, I deactivated my personal Facebook, which has been a huge uh, a positive move for me. But I do need access to the Psychedelicast Facebook page. At this point, all I'm able to do is post to uh, Instagram, and it's automatically, whatever I post to Instagram is automatically uh, posted to the Facebook for Psychedelicast. So I can't access that individually, and uh, I'm trying to, trying to hash that out. So if it seems that I've been a little less uh, active on Facebook, it's because I don't have access to the page right now. I'm trying to regain that, so bear with me as I sort that out. Let's see, what else do we wanna talk about? Um, I am looking forward to traveling to be with Edis again. Uh, I think I'm gonna make a trip to Sao Paulo again in about a month uh, to visit her um, because Brazilians aren't allowed to come to the US right now, so that's really making our uh, meetings difficult and expensive. Um, so we're having to meet in other countries. We can't, she can't come to America. So we've met in Mexico. Uh, I'm going to return to Brazil. We've discussed meeting in Mexico again, although probably not the city of Mexico because we had a pretty rough time there. Um, although we had a wonderful time with each other, the city was kind of harsh. And uh, that's understandable given the current state of the world. So maybe the Yucatan, which is a little more friendly toward gringos in my experience. Um, that's neither here nor there. So I'm looking forward to that, and uh, I'm looking forward to having some great guests on for you guys in the coming in the coming weeks and months. And uh, Trisha is uh, does not disappoint. This is a, a fantastic interview with a uh, a really interesting lady. So let's do psychedelic news, and then we'll get right into that.
Oh, yeah. One more thing that will uh, become evident to you as we get into the interview. I finally nailed down a solid way and I think a sustainable way to um, record my audio and my guest's audio in higher quality. That's been a problem for me in the past. I- I've worked with it and tried to figure it out. Not that it was hard, um, but I had it set up a few times and I kind of lost the settings. Then I got a new computer and yada, yada, yada. But I think now I have it, uh, I have my settings all correct to sustainably have high quality audio for both myself and the guest. Usually my audio, oddly enough, is kind of shitty and the guest's is usually good. So I guess that's better than the opposite. But now we're both going to be clear as you will hear in this episode. So uh, I'm excited about that because uh, that's kind of been bothering me for a while. Anywho, let's do psychedelic news now. In psychedelic news today, I've got one here that hits pretty close to home. I actually came across this um, this topic uh, a couple days ago, and I wanted to put that into my memory banks because I wanted to share this one with you. Uh, this one is from TexasMonthly.com. Uh, the article is entitled, Turn On, Tune In, Feel Better, The Rise of Psychedelic Therapy in Texas. This article was published on May 14th, 2021, written by Miss Katie Vine. On the day it opened in early May, Field Trip Health's therapeutic facility in Houston's uptown neighborhood looked like a high-end strip mall spa. Dressed in a floral shirt, Matt Emmer, the company's director of operations and business development, showed me the clinic's amenities. He led me down a hallway around a narrow Zen Rock garden, past 80 therapy rooms, pardon me, past eight therapy rooms with white leather, zero-gravity chairs and headphones and into a spacious, sunlight-filled gathering area outfitted with gray couches and a plush white carpet. A few light pink, brown, and gray pillows and throw blankets were scattered about. He sat down on the couch and asked, Are you familiar with psychedelics? Field Trip, which launched in 2019 in Toronto and began opening clinics across North America in 2020, offers patients what is currently the only psychedelic drug with FDA approval for prescription, the anesthetic ketamine. After an initial screening with a psychiatrist to ensure safety, patients here are paired with a psychotherapist to begin four to six sessions with the drug. They take it as a lozenge, which induces an hour-long dissociative episode. A therapist is always present in the room and a nurse in the hallway should patients require medical intervention. After which, they have an hour of follow-up therapy. Settled into the treatment room, we actually use weighted blankets, reclining chairs, curated playlists, and eye eye shades, Emmer said. The Uptown Houston's clinic is Field Trip's first in Texas, but it is by no means the only facility in the state offering ketamine. The antidepressant effects of the drug, which has FDA approval as an anesthetic, have been researched since the 70s, and a nasal spray form of the drug was approved for the treatment of depression in 2019. Many clinics in Texas use other forms of the drug off-label for psychiatric therapy. The Texas Medical Board doesn't keep data on the number of therapeutic facilities offering ketamine treatment. But more than a dozen clinics have opened in the past half decade in many of Texas's largest cities, where patient interest has grown substantially. Though therapy isn't cheap and often isn't covered by insurers, six sessions of ketamine can cost around $6,000 out of pocket. Studies have found it is effective at combating treatment-resistant depression. But ketamine is probably not the end game for all these clinics, and it certainly isn't for field trip. 
Based on the growing body of evidence, researchers predict the FDA will approve MDMA for the treatment of PTSD by 2023 and psilocybin for depression by 2025. Emmer is very much a businessman with an eye on those future prospects. We can provide ketamine-assisted psychotherapy in these centers right now in order to build the infrastructure, he said. So when MDMA is available, that's almost like another item that's on the treatment menu. When psilocybin becomes available, psilocybin will also be on that menu. Soon, it appears, Texas will add to research into psychedelics that, facilitates, that, that facilities such as Field Trip could use. This legislative session, Brownsville Democrat Alex Dominguez authored a bill in the Texas House that would fund research on psilocybin for treatment-resistant PTSD in veterans, as well as a literature review of the existing studies on ketamine and MDMA's use in the treatment of the disorder. Noting that some veterans have been on lengthy waiting lists to receive psychedelic therapy treatment in Mexico, Dominguez believes Texas should begin to explore the efficacy of such treatment in the states. It's a terrible situation to have to admit that our veterans have to go to another country to receive treatment for something that we should be taking responsibility for, he said. Dominguez told me that he met with several researchers who have had some success with ketamine in treating veterans with PTSD but that many believe they will get better results with psychedelics that are still awaiting phase 3 trials and FDA approval. In studies, MDMA has been shown to be particularly effective for the treatment of PTSD, but, Dominguez says, many veterans hesitated to use synthetic drugs and voiced a preference for a natural substance, hence psilocybin. Lynette Avril, a clinical neuroscientist who studies PTSD and suicidality in veterans at Yale University and Baylor College of Medicine and consulted with Dominguez on the bill, told me that most research on psilocybin has been on its use in treating depression. Studying its potential for treating PTSD would be a landmark effort that hasn't happened to date, she said. Various doctors and veterans testified in support of the bill, as did former Governor Rick Perry, who came to the Capitol to advocate for its passage, even while identifying himself as a very anti-drug person. No one testified against it at a hearing in April. In early May, the House passed Dominguez's bill on a 134-12 vote, and it now awaits a vote in the Senate. Exactly what psychological treatment with psychedelics will look like in the U.S. in a few years remains to be seen. Groundbreaking research from the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research at the San Jose, California-based Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies has received considerable attention in recent years. Michael Pollan's 2018 best-selling book, How to Change Your Mind, also raised the profile of psychedelics as a form of mental health treatment. But because the therapy is relatively new, even enthusiasts are treading cautiously. As Emmer walked me out the door in Houston, he said, quote, I think it's important to understand that it's not like these drugs offer a magic bullet. It's not like you just take some ketamine and you take some magic mushrooms and that's it. He grew intent on this point. I think people have these tremendous transformative experiences, but a lot of it is in the preparation, the safety, the support doing it in this very responsible, controlled manner. And that will end the article there. So a hopeful article for us here in Texas um, the drug laws in Texas are very antiquated. Um, marijuana is medically legal here, but it's like, I forget what it is. It's only like a certain, I think a specific single tincture for a specific single type of seizure. So we really don't have a medical marijuana problem here. You can get arrested for a joint. You can go to serious time for like a couple ounces of, of marijuana. So 
Texas's drug laws are very, very antiquated and outdated. And uh, God, I hope they change soon. Like we keep getting, you know, and it's like highly likely that 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 bill will die in the Senate. Um, Texas is just so right wing, so hyper old school conservative in some certain aspects. Um, so although hopeful in reality, I don't think that that will, uh, that bill will, will hold up. I hope that it does. I think it would be fantastic. Um, but we're making steps in the right direction. And I think eventually Texas will come around. Uh, the world is changing and, uh, it's pretty hard to ignore the evidence at this point. Plus the money, man, like Texas is a money-making state. Um, I don't understand how they haven't equated cannabis legalization to stupid tax revenue. I just don't get it. That's neither here nor there. We'll leave that up to the suits in Washington. What we can offer you right now is a very interesting chat with Miss Trisha Eastman. Let's get into it. Thanks, guys. big tool fan <laughs> alex gray did their last album cover and when i was at burning man they parachuted the album down and they played it on this art car that i had been doing some collaborations with it was really cool 2008 yeah, that's insane i saw the video so yeah I'm a, I'm a tool fanatic actually tool is heavily responsible if not the main responsibility for my venturing into psychedelics when i was younger um, cool. but I was definitely long awaiting the release of that album, and I saw a video from Burning Man with them, um, like previewing the first like single or whatever, uh, yeah. from that from that art car. So you were actually there. Well, I was, I, I could have went and did the the thing, but I brought um, a tribe from South Africa to basically go play all these shows on the playa. And so I just um, felt like the guys weren't as excited about it. So I decided to kind of go with their flow. But we were on the car before it happened. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're having this big party. Alex is coming. And I'm like, darn, if we didn't have such a regimented schedule, we could have totally went with the flow. It would have been so cool. That's crazy. That's crazy. I have always wanted to go to Burning Man. I've never... I've never like kind of like really logisticized it and tried to make a, a, a serious mm -hmm. attempt to go, 
but uh, that's definitely something I want to do really, really soon. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many ways you can do it. You know, you can fly into the playa, you can drive into the playa, you can camp with a tent, you know, you can camp in your car. And I've done all the ways. Um, it's a really uncomfortable journey, no matter what way you do it. Um, but it's worth it. It's like you have to do it at least once in your life because there is something <clears throat> magic about the playa. Yeah, I've always heard that. And yeah, it does seem uh, like a pain in the ass to actually get there and do it. And then like the environment itself, it's it's odd that it's flourished in, in such a way that it has because the environment itself seems so harsh and unpersonable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like extreme hot and extreme cold and like sandstorms and you just kind of go with the flow, you know, it's, it's, it, it really is interesting. It might have been kind of like almost a boot camp for the COVID apocalypse times we're in right now because, you know, I feel like it definitely teaches you about letting go of attachment and really being in surrender that's a good way to look at it that's a good way to look at it. well uh, trisha welcome to psychedelic cast i'm glad to finally get you on the show we've played yeah. message skype cell phone tag for a while now but you're here and uh appreciate it thank you um why don't we just start with basic introductions i've been looking at your work and it's quite interesting i'm gonna I have some questions I would like to ask you, but why don't you just kind of um, tell our listeners who you are, why we why we might be talking today? Mm, um, well, I mean, first of all, I just want to acknowledge, thank you so much. Really honored uh, and grateful for the work that you do. And I um, started working with medicine, like in a in the role of a facilitator, six years ago. I have a long history with psychedelics going all the way back to, you know, a teenager, but then getting a job at a counterculture bookstore called Raver Books, where, you know, I, I, I was introduced to Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and all the classics. And I wouldn't say I was necessarily drawn to that. It wasn't necessarily my vibe. I love doing MDMA, love doing mushrooms when I was younger. And my dad, my real father, um, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia in my early 20s. And what triggered his schizophrenic break was his abuse of cannabis. And so it kind of made me afraid of psychedelics because there was so much misinformation out there um, related to, um, oh, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs or you know, if you do too much MDMA, you're going to like break your brain and you're going to be depressed for the rest of your life. And now, thanks to psychedelic research, we know that was all BS. Yeah. So I took a little break from psychedelics. I came back um, at age 28. At age 28, I had a kind of coming to you know, like I'll just say kundalini awakening, which I can define that term if you want or if you already know what that means. I'm aware, but why don't you just define it uh, however briefly you'd like for our listeners in case they're not familiar. Um, I, I cursorily understand what you mean, but 
what does it mean for you? So, you know, it's really interesting. I think that there is something where we have a true mystical experience, where we have a meeting with the divine, and then something shifts inside your body. And this awareness, um, for me, it was for a very long time. And um, it happened from doing MDMA, believe it or not. Um, and I literally was walking around for like several months and I could just feel this like almost like feeling of enlightenment. I'm sure like the feeling like when Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree and, and he had his first kind of experience of, of that true mystical connection. I would say it was like that, but not under a Bodhi tree. It was with a, a, a pill of MDMA. Um, <laughs> but what was interesting about that experience was that it, it told me something really important, which was that I wasn't living in alignment with my true self, that I wasn't fully authentic, and that I needed to leave my husband. Well, it didn't say exactly leave my husband, but it said I need to go off on my own and find myself. So I did. I literally walked away from my entire life. This was at age 30. And, um, you know, kind of did the eat, pray, love thing for about six months, traveling, kind of figuring out. But really in that time, feeling a deep sense of flow of a trail of breadcrumbs, which eventually led me to Los Angeles, which led me to sitting with ayahuasca. <clears throat> and under no, uh, no, like of my own will or desire or volition, um, got invited, um, to work in 2015 facilitating at the, the crossroad clinics of, um, Abogaine, which is a molecule from Iboga used for treating opiate addiction. And, um, Martin Polanco, the owner of the clinic developed this new program, to work with people in a psycho-spiritual setting. So it was really designed for people that wanted a safe experience with this medicine um, in a more medically supervised setting, but also having a lot of the shamanic kind of spiritual elements incorporated into it, like a mix of both. And so I was a facilitator, but there were doctors working alongside me. So I'll say like humbly, I did not know what I was doing back then. I knew a lot about healing because when I went on that spiritual journey, that's all I focused on was like studying Tantra and somatic healing and um, breath work and, you know, reading all of the ancient Vedic texts and really kind of, un and Buddhist and uh, Buddhic texts and really understand and, and studying the um, comedic mysteries. I went through mystery school and um, which is like a life process. Um, it's not like something like you start and finish. Um, but um, going through all of that, I started to kind of get a deeper understanding of the original principles of um the universe and healing and how to work with the elements and how to understand how to work with different people and, um, and then receive that invitation. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I never imagined. And then as I stepped into that role, humbly realizing, like, I didn't know what the 
F I was doing. You know, I did have the respect that I had a connection to my intuition, but there was just so much I needed to know. And I never thought that I knew any of it. I just knew that I wanted to be of service. And when I connected with my soul and asked if it was something I, I should accept, like this opportunity, I received really strong in my heart a yes. And so um, I just went along the path and um, ended up going to Africa, getting initiated in Gabon. I've done four initiations in different lineages of Buiti, mostly studying the Fong uh, tradition, which is more syncretic, connected with um, uh, more ritual, but kind of blended with with um, similarities to like Catholicism and very similar also to the Yoruba tradition, which is quite interesting because my ancestors um, are from Mexico. I'm Mestiza. I have a mix of Mexica, Atomi, um, Oaxaca. You know, all my ancestors are from all these different regions, uh, Mayan. Uh, and so I definitely felt like when I started working in Mexico at Crossroads, like a lot of my ancestral stuff started activating in my ancestors um, practice Centuria, um, which was brought to Mexico in the early 1700s, like 1724, um, and practiced it for many generations. So um, I feel like there's definitely a deep connection um, to Buiti for me, mm -hmm. you know, especially because of my ancestors, you know, I really feel, feel a deep connection to them through that work. Um, but I also work with uh, the Bufo alvarius, which is the the uh, venom of a toad um, in the Sonoran Desert. And what's crazy about that as well is that medicine doesn't really have any type of formal lineage, like ongoing lineage like ayahuasca or peyote, you know, are connected to many different tribes and lineages. Um, but um, I got connected to my Mexica ancestors and started dancing moon dance and incorporating a lot of, you know, my ancestral traditions. Since it is a medicine of Mexico, um, bringing that into um, that, because there are a lot of Mesoamerican um, historical iconography, statues, temples that honor the toad. So one could really easily guess based on the archaeological findings that that there was some practice with the medicine. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, um, I've, I'm familiar with the Bufo. I tried it in Mexico, in Tulum, actually. I did it really? in Tulum. Yeah. Um, I, I saw, it. I was looking at your website earlier. We'll talk about it uh, in a little bit, but uh, I saw that you're offering a uh, Bufo retreat there. That's pretty cool. Bufo, yeah. is, Bufo, obviously, as you know, is pretty mind-shattering. Uh, well, maybe not mind-shattering is not a good word, but uh, I was so scared before Bufo. I was absolutely yeah. terrified. Like, that was the most fear I've ever had to go through. Um, mm -hmm. I think it was because it was I knew it was going to be my first big experience after my ayahuasca experiences, huh? which were so massive. I was just like, oh my God, like I'm about to put myself back in that, you know, that place mm -hmm. where I was during ayahuasca, which was profound and beautiful and healing and transformative, but the absolutely most intense thing I'd ever undergone. Yeah. And uh, so 
man, it took me it took me some time to get my courage to 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 try the bufo. But as soon as the experience overwhelmed me, it was total loss of their fear did not exist, you know, like it, it wasn't even a concept. It was just like uh oneness, everything one simultaneous, you know. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, that was one medicine that I think even beyond five M, uh, beyond NNDMT because NNDMT for me is very intense, similar to ayahuasca, shorter acting. If five MEO DMT had no element of discomfort to it, other than like me trying to freak my own self out in the beginning, but the experience itself was so like loving and peaceful. It was such a it was such a dichotomy from what I was expecting. Like I was, you know. Yeah. You have to have that intensity in respect to having the, so to say, rocket fuel to travel as far as Five Amino takes you. Because it takes you into the place of least ego, the place of least, and, and it takes, you know, it takes some fire to burn off that ego that wants to like hold on and be like, no, I want to be in control of this experience. And you just have nothing to do but let go because it's so intense. And um, there's many ways to work with 5-MeO. I think a huge percentage of people that work with 5-MeO tend to not actually work with it properly. And, um, and overdose people too. And that can make the experience a lot more intense. Um, it's a very highly purgative medicine. And so the way that I work with it and it is in a very kind of low dose, working up to a higher dose. That way you can kind of get some of the purging and the releasing out of the way so the person can just fully surrender into the experience. Um, I really, I really love that medicine and I've worked very, very closely with it. I mean, I've worked with probably over a thousand people with, with Bufo Alvarius over the last six years. And, um, I mean, it's the most beautiful medicine by far in terms of just, I mean, there's definitely shadow stuff that comes up and discomfort and fear, but in terms of just the level of like grace and beauty that many people experience from being able to surrender to it, there's, there's just nothing else like it. Um, I'm really grateful really grateful for that medicine and I'll also preface that you know in the times that we live I always look at things from the perspective of sustainability and what's right and I think we all have to really find that peace within ourselves to move forward in the future and that is like you know the toad is a is an is a little creature that hibernates underground nine months of the year it only comes out during the rainy season in august july sometimes early june depending on when it rains and um that's when they mate that's when they eat and because they're meditating in this like dark little burrow under the ground they kind of have the same benefit of like a dark room retreat and um, there's a really great book by Montauk Chia called Darkness Technology. I highly recommend picking it up. It's a short <laughs> read, but it's really about how the pineal gland, a.k.a. the crystal palace, 
um, creates its own endogenous 5-MeO-DMT. So, you know, we can get high on our own supply. We don't necessarily have to smoke the venom of the toad and, you know, take this precious resource to um, have the experience with 5-MeO-DMT. There's a lot of retreats like in Thailand, um, Montauk Chia's retreat center where you can work with um, the darkness technology and they feed you like tryptamine rich foods all week like peanuts have really high tryptamines in them and mm. then maybe that's why i darkness. love peanuts so much never never knew that <laughs> Ooh, yeah i like i love peanuts too i like the have you ever had the jungle peanuts the ones with the little stripes on them they're like they're a little bit more exotic that's my that's my thing um but yeah, the tryptamine. Those. I'm sorry. I said I'll have to try those when I get the opportunity. Yeah, they're really good. I think you can just order them online. Like if you look up Superfood Jungle Peanuts, because they're they're a lot more like full of vitamins and stuff than the regular planters peanuts or whatever yeah. regular peanuts uh, that are that are grown and they're non-GMO. Um, but. There's many ways that we can actually stimulate our own release of 5-MeO-DMT. One of the ways is through different like meditation technologies such as breathwork, holotropic breathwork. Um, also just simply the act of, you know, squeezing the PC muscle, which is the muscle that kind of supports the pelvic floor, you know, the one that you use when you stop going to the bathroom. So when you use that muscle and you tighten it, and then you're basically sending the kundalini energy up the spine. So with your intention, you're imagining that energy traveling all the way up your spine and you, and you move with your breath. So as it's going up the spine, you're breathing in, you're imagining it hitting the pineal gland and then you're breathing out. If you do that a few times, you'll feel this kind of little like tingliness in your body, which is like these tiny little releases bursts of uh, DMT and serotonin. And so, yeah, so the pineal gland makes uh, melatonin, uh, serotonin, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and pinealine. So you literally have this alchemical kitchen within your own brain. And the pineal gland, you know, they talk, there, there's a funny story about like, I don't know if it's true or not because I'm not a doctor, but what I'll say from my research and just my own perception, there used to be a story around like, oh, a calcified pineal gland is a bad thing. But my understanding is that the calcite crystals in the pineal gland, it's not a crust. It's actually a thin layer of like lined up pine, uh, calcite crystals. And what happens is when they vibrate, they cause the release of the melatonin. Then once the melatonin goes into the pineal gland, it gets to a certain state. Usually it's about 25 milligrams uh, of melatonin in the pineal gland. And then it starts to transmute alchemically into pinealine, NNDMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and uh, serotonin. Very interesting. Yeah, uh, I, I run, for my day job, I operate a CAT scan machine. Oh, and cool. Yeah, yeah. So I, I scan a lot of heads and a lot of brains. And I remember when I was a young CAT scan tech, 
this just kind of speaks to a few things that you said. First of all, one thing that you said that struck me was about the MDMA. I remember when I was in the early days of the internet, when I was heavily experiencing experimenting with MDMA, probably like 2007-ish, uh, people would, my friends would tell me like, uh, dude, you gotta, you gotta take a few days off. Like the MDMA is going to literally the, they're saying it drills holes in your brain. I remember like that was one thing people would say that it, that, that it physically drills holes in your brain, which is not possible. But, uh, um, going back to the CAT scan thing, I scan a lot, I would scan a lot of heads in my early career and I would see calcifications, which is totally normal. Everyone has them to some extent, um, inside the, uh, inside the little spaces between the gray matter and i would always think oh look this is one of those uh, calcified pineal glands everyone's <laughs> always talking about i'm like dude you don't even know <laughs> and usually i've never seen a calcification in the area where the pineal gland should be i've seen them in all kinds of other places in the human brain and i've done at this point th thousands of head scans and uh i've never seen a calcification in the area of the pineal gland i know that's kind of off topic but I've been looking, and I haven't seen it. <laughs> Interesting, but you found it. See, that's the thing I think with the psychedelics. I don't think it's about calcification of the pineal gland because when we look at, like, the technologies that create, like, for instance, the Great Pyramid of Giza, you know, it was coated with, um, was it limestone, I think I want to say, the, the white stones that were on the outside of it. I think it was limestone. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and, and then it had a gold cap on the top of it. And it was the, the combination of pressing up against the granite that it created piezoelectric energy. Mm. And um, the, my understanding is that the vibration of the crystals in the pineal gland are actually creating piezoelectric energy in the brain. And what's interesting about that piezoelectric energy is it creates a field around the body and that field around the body actually allows us to communicate. So what, you know, if you want to get too metaphysical about it, like, um, I mean, my understanding, and you know who's actually done some good research around this? Um, is it Joe Vit Vit Vitale, or what's his name? Um, you know uh, who I'm what talking is, What is it that he's into? I'm not, uh, it doesn't, the name doesn't sound familiar to me. Um, it, he's into, um, like kind of like spiritual technologies and he does a lot of research on, um, you know, different, um, yes, Joe Vitale. And, um, I think, wait, 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 is that right? Maybe, no, maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, I, I know I'm misquoting it, but. You know, people know people who know who he is know who I'm talking about, and I apologize. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. For the dog. Um, but he's like a, a coach in, um, you know, just like uh, all the different spiritual kind of technologies, and really about. Um, yeah, maybe it is Joe Vitale. I'm unfamiliar. Okay. I'm. I just. I'm. I'm not familiar with him. It, it's a good possibility. But uh, for listeners, if you guys know who this is, let me know on social media. And if you if you don't, we'll find out together. Someone will know. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. I should have no. I should have had it in my notes ahead of time. Uh, Dude. But uh, really <laughs> you're totally fine. 
that he is um, done quite a bit of research about this idea that those vibrations of crystals in the pineal gland create like a transmission, like a communication, but also a way that we receive spiritual information. And so if we look at this idea, for instance, in the Vedic traditions, they talk about the third eye, which is connected to the pineal gland, which is where we receive our intuition. And when we take psychedelics, we have um, visions from the psychedelics, whether it's ayahuasca or, you know, and of course, every everyone is different because primarily these visions are connected to specific combinations such as 5-HT1A serotonin, 5-HT7A and 5-HT2A serotonin, so on and so forth which create like those mystical experiences, but the actual visual effects of it uh, coming through the technology of the pineal gland. So um, I do really believe that there's something there related to it being a device where we can receive messages and and information. So the more you work it out, the better. You can do it with 5-MeO-DMT or you can do it on your own. Yeah. You know, if you would, if someone would have told me what you just said a couple years ago, I would have been like, "This is bullshit." Like, <laughs> no, not not gonna happen. But then I drank ayahuasca, and there's no way that I could describe it other than like, there would I was definitely in communication with other people in the room without speaking. I was definitely in communication with the shaman without speaking. Mm-hmm. There were, I mean, what so profoundly seem to be external entities visiting me my grandparents my ancestors uh people that like like people that i looked up to like terrence mckenna like when i got up when i there was points where I w- it was so intense <laughs> that i would kind of become afraid and uh i would i would be like i would think like what would terrence mckenna do and like it was almost <laughs> like he was there with me like his spirit it was so weird and uh yeah, all these things happening that was like the vibrations of other people were interacting in my experience and I was kind of reaching into other people's experience and I could feel like like the tendrils of us like kind of exploring, you know, as the as the ceremony went on and we got deeper and it the kind of like, you know, the the peak like the first 2 hours that are just for me just like this howling like psychedelic inferno like just i'm just plastered to the floor with no body you know just blasting through tunnels and and everything is just (laughs) you know but then it comes to a point where it's like okay like in in any trip you kind of get the hang of it if you want to say that you can Uh kind of start to flow with it and you know there's there's peaks and valleys and in that space, I could feel that, like, everyone was kind of there at the same time. Like, a lot of trauma had been purged out, and a lot of, like, a lot of difficulty had been gone through by each person in different ways. But we all kind of came to this, like, plateau at the same time. And I could feel, like, everyone was kind of exploring, like, the the kind of, like, fringes of, of almost coming into each other's... Uh, experience at least that's how I felt and then I I would talk to people later after the after it was over and I was like hey man like did you feel that where I was like you were like in my mind and I was like in your mind 
and and this guy who was next to me, he's like, yeah, dude, I felt that like the whole time. I was like, mm-hmm. wow, yeah, okay. Um, I didn't think that was real until just now, you know. Um, so that was crazy. And another, uh, ju- this is a funny little aside. Something very synchronistic and strange happened to me yesterday, and I was telling my girlfriend about it. And uh, I told the guy at the store about it, and he didn't really care. He didn't think it was that interesting. But I'm going to tell you and my listeners. Yesterday, I got in my car. I was leaving from the gym to go to a little store right before work. And for mm-hmm. some strange reason, the, the Brian Adams song, Heaven, it's like, baby, you're all that I want. You know that <laughs> song? Right? It's like not a good song. It's, it's like a classic song, but it's just, you know, it's Brian Adams. For some yeah. reason, that song like started playing in my head, and I probably haven't heard that song consciously like in years. Maybe it, you know, it's played over the speakers in some supermarket somewhere during those last few years, but I haven't like sought to listen to that song probably ever in my life. Um, and it popped into my head, and I'm kind of singing it to myself, thinking, "Why am I singing this Brian Adams song? This is weird." I walk. <laughs> I walk inside the store and the song is playing inside the store. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? This is crazy. So I told the guy at the counter what just happened. He was like, yeah, man. So like, are you going to buy something or what? I'm like, you don't, <laughs> like, you don't get it, dude. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I love it when stuff like that happens. Yeah, it was like a really glaring instance of it where I was like, I went back to my car and like turned on the radio and like, was I listening? No, it wasn't on the radio in my car. I've been in the car for like six minutes. There's nowhere else I could I couldn't have heard it. It's not possible. So, anyways, the weird little synchronicity that uh, you know, I that the reason why I brought that up though is I was watching this documentary I called I Am. I don't yeah. know if you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. My my girlfriend got me to watch it, but it's about like the guy who directed. Jim Carrey in uh, Ace Ventura and Liar Liar, famous mm-hmm. Hollywood director, really, really nice guy. And it's about his journey of becoming super rich and famous, um, realizing that that's not what he wanted for his life. You know, all this money and, and, and status wasn't really uh, what he was looking for. And so he went on like a kind of a journey of uh, self-exploration. Mm. And uh, he was talking at one point about how some scientists had posited that the human brain is like a, is like a resonator that is capable of picking up vibrations that can allow you to almost see into the future for like the next five seconds. Like sometimes when you get that feeling, like that intuition that something's about to happen and it happens like within close proximity, this guy was positing that the human brain is, is capturing vibrations and almost in a sense able to predict the future in short time spans. So I was I was like, maybe that's what happened? I don't know. It was, it was weird. Yeah. yeah. So well, it is interesting it because... <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it's... um, Like, there's so much around, like, archetypal energy and how it pulls things into your field. When you look at internal family systems... Um, which is the idea that a group of people get in the room and do work together and it just so happens they end up being your family, like the same archetypal energy. And I see this with 
human design, which I studied for quite a few years and did readings for quite a few years. And that is that we have these electromagnetic channels and those channels are archetypal. And what they do is they draw certain people into our field to learn a specific lesson. And until we embody that lesson, we keep pulling those energies into our field. And it makes sense. It's very much similar to, in a sense, the idea of mirror neurons and the idea of how, you know, they would do the studies on a monkey drinking a glass of water and how another monkey observing would have the same neurons firing in its brain. So, you know, I think we have enough science behind this idea and enough like psychological models that we can say that humans, and, and now even more so with like um, Institute of Noetic Sciences and their work around bringing thought leaders who are doing research on intuitive practices, we're more and more realizing that we are all psychic. Yeah. And it's like sad that we had to go so long as a species turning that superpower off because, you know, I mean, it's great, the gift that we get to reawaken, um, especially, you know, through psychedelics and different practices such as the breath work or dark room technology, darkness technology. Um, but really, ultimately, these are just things that are a side effect of like healing your trauma, learning how to truly be present, if you can do that, if you can truly embody yourself, you you can do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that as well, um, like how we've kind of become hardened over time. I used to distinctly get that sense when I first started experimenting with mushrooms when I was probably doing like low to mid-range doses initially, a couple, maybe a gram up to three and a half grams. Um, I would get this distinct sense as soon as the experience would, would start that like, this is how I was supposed to be not like the way I was before the experience started. It was like my brain had like flowered and like opened up. And like every time I would eat mushrooms, I would get that feeling. I was like, this is like the true state that we're supposed to exist in, not the one that I normally exist in. And it felt like, like kind of like the armor was taken off or like the the shielding or I guess it's just the stripping away of the ego and every and you know the things that you learned like stripping away of your learned experiences um but I would get the distinct feeling that I was like if we all lived like in this state you know it, it just felt like the natural state as opposed to the state that I lived in in my day-to-day -day life and uh, if you take a little higher dose, though, it gets much weirder, and you don't want to live your day-to-day -day life in that in that dose range. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you did the museum dose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that's how I started. You know, I was, and still to this day, like I, I I'm, uh, I'll do my high doses every once in a while, but I gotta really work up my courage because. I'm extremely, extremely susceptible to psychedelics. Like low doses for most people can really affect me strongly. Like, uh, you know, uh, one and a half to two grams of mushrooms for some people is nothing. For me, it's like, 
I'm I'm out there, you know. Like <laughs> I'm still on planet Earth, but I'm I'm high up. Um, and and same for same for uh, cannabis and and DMT like my, like even just a microdose like a one puff of MMDMT can take me pretty far out. And a sh- actually, the shaman in my ayahuasca ceremony told me that before we even drank ayahuasca, he was like, you know, they do the kind of meet and greet or they they you know kind of want to get to know you before the ceremony. We were talking back and forth, and he was like. He said, you're not going to need a lot. I can tell you're not going to need very much. Like, uh, you're going to get a low dose. Or you're going to get a lower dose. And uh, I was like, okay, like, I'm not going to argue with this dude. Like, he, I'm just like, you know, I trust you. You know what you're doing. Like, if, yeah. he says, if he says I need a lower dose, then I'll take a lower dose. So I did. And I saw the doses that they poured. And mine was one of the lowest they poured. And my experience was so astonishingly intense i'm just like that was a low dose like what the fuck like I, there's no way i could have withstood anymore i because they came and asked me later do you want to do you want a second glass and i just laughed at her i was like no i don't <laughs> maybe i should have but uh um, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, your website, psychedelicjourneys.com. I was there looking at some of your retreats and some of the work that you're doing there. Why don't you tell us about that? Because that looks pretty interesting. So, um, yeah, I've been doing these retreats for about five years. And um, it's, my favorite, it's my favorite work is to go to really beautiful places that are usually like a a spiritual vortex in some way like a sacred site like when we do our retreat in Tulum we're on the um in the area of the Mayans and so we're really you know connecting to the ancestors of that land and so it's 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 really a beautiful opportunity to connect to the medicine to connect to the land to connect to the ancestral wisdom of that area and um, and then the work that I do with Iboga, typically I do in um, Costa Rica because it's an environment very similar to Gabon, like very tropical and the medicine just really likes it there. Um, and then um, I do a yearly retreat in Ibiza um, and we do, uh, we visit um, the vortex on that island as well, and it's it's really incredible. And um, when we when we do the work, it's you know typically uh, over several days where we work with the toad medicine, and then we do temezcal to you know kind of sweat the impurities out of the body, and then we ground everything with like a traditional Mayan um, cacao ceremony to really help, you know. So we're working instead of just with the toad on its own, we're working with three um, medicines of Mexico, which are the cacao, the the temezcal, and and the bufo. And so it it really helps the medicine to work well with people and really helps prepare them for the experience. And we do a lot of embodiment practices as well to really help, um, you know, connect to your body, release trauma out of your body. And it really just helps you to surrender to the experience. So, um, you know, I've, with COVID, we had to take a little time off 
from the retreats and most of the time that I've been traveling like right now I've been doing a lot of private retreats where people call me up and they're like hey I'd like to curate a private retreat in Ibiza or I'd like to curate a private retreat in um, Tulum and so I haven't I haven't done any of the psychedelic journeys retreats since um, January of 20. Uh, 2020 um, was my last retreat uh, because, um, you know, it's just, you know, getting everybody there safely. But but now that things are starting to open up, we're starting to look at some new dates um, and we're also looking at some new areas where we're going to do retreats, which will be announced really soon. Nice. Yeah, I love Tulum. I totally I think you're definitely on to something with Tulum being a weird vortex for that kind of stuff. Um I've been to Tulum before when I was younger. I recently went on a walkabout. I, w- I did kind of what you did. I, I was in a long-term relationship that ended, and uh, I left for six months from September 2020 until February of this year. I started in Mexico. I was in the Yucatan Peninsula for a month, and mm-hmm. then, then I went to Puerto Rico, Colombia, and finally into Brazil. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I was gone for a long time doing a lot of stuff. But uh, Tulum struck me of all of the many places I traveled. Of course, there were many other beautiful locales and places that I would love to go back to. Tulum really struck me as a special place, and you know maybe a, I have a bias because I had my toad, my first bufo experience there. But even before I had that experience, I was like, man, this place is amazing. Um, I just was in Mexico City like a week ago, actually. And I did not have the same experience. I've been to Mexico many times, but Mexico City is really hard-edged, like really uh, gnarly. Um, yeah. Not, not, not so uh, accommodating for foreigners. Or um, Yeah, my, my experience was kind of rough there. But uh, Tulum and the Yucatan, Playa and Cozumel mm-hmm. and all that, those are such beautiful places. I wonder if you if you've worked in Tulum. I wonder if you know the person who facilitated my bufo ceremony. Probably do. There is a there's a retreat center there. It's called Bufo Alvarius Sanctuary. Really? Are you familiar with this? I saw it online. Of all things, like I think that we we were looking for something, and I saw it, and I was just like, wow. I didn't realize they had, but it's not actually on the beach. No, it's not. It's a, it's a city. Yeah. It's kind of up in the city. It's not on the beach. I had to bike down like a couple miles to get to the beach, but the location they have is beautiful. It's like a little, like they kind of create, created rooms out of like, uh, uh, those shipping containers. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really minimalist, but it's a very nice place. And the guy who, who, who owns it and who facilitates his name is Valtteri Hyatt-Aloma. Uh-huh. You know him? Are you familiar with this guy? No, I haven't met him. I just know of it. Like when we were returning our rental car, we drove by it and we were both like, Buffalo, there he is? Yeah. We're like, whoa, that's crazy. And it but has no. like a, it has like a huge stone sculpture outside. It's just like DMT yeah. and like six foot tall letters. I'm like, okay. This guy's going going hard over here. 
Um, yeah, I mean, only in Mexico can you really get away with that. It's like, wow. You know, I wanted to say something about um, Mexico City. Did you visit the pyramids in Tiahuacan? Yes, I did. How Actually, was I was, it was dope. I was going to show you this. I got a Mayan tattoo. Oh, uh, my God, I love it. It's like a combination of the Quetzalcoatl, like, plumed serpent and... Uh, oh. Ouroboros. Yeah, I have to show you. This is from this is from one of my Mexica friends. It's got the Quetzalcoatl, and it's ah, the cycle yeah. of death. It's my Copalero. Awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I did. We did Teotihuacan, and um, we walked the whole thing. We had a, like a we had a, like a, a guide who went with us and told us everything about the pyramids. It was awesome. That was one of the definitely the highlights of the trip, if not the highlight of the trip. Uh, a lot of yeah. the things, a lot of things we did when we ventured outside the city, uh, like to Xochimilco and Teotihuacan and Coyoacan, these kind of like little towns and pueblos outside of Mexico City proper, the vibe is totally different. Like when you get in, when you get in the when you get in the Uber in Mexico City downtown and then you get out in Xochimilco, it's like, okay, this is a different place. And yeah, we had some rough I got pickpocketed from my phone in like an elaborate pickpocketing pickpocketing thing. It was crazy. It was it was yeah. pretty it was pretty I mean, impressive. <laughs> people people are suffering right now financially because of COVID. I think, you know, like if we really look at, you know, like I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I'm deeply connected to my family in Gabon from from Buiti, my Buiti family. And, you know, they've shut down the visa process to get into Gabon um, since COVID started. It's not open. So right now, no one can get into the country. And um, no one's making any money. No one's doing initiations. No one's got any visitors or guests. They're hungry. They're suffering. You know, I can't tell you how many text messages I get from different people in the village that are just like, can you help me out with like a couple hundred dollars? Because they're really hurting right now. So I can only imagine even Mexico City is a lot more wealthy, I think, than other parts of Mexico. But I, I can definitely see how people could be in big need. I mean, even like... Venice Beach, California, you know, there are more mobile homes and homeless and there's been a huge issue with fires that have broken out. There have been like three really big fires from different encampments where, you know, it's burned residences and, and things like that. So, yeah, it, it really is hard to travel now in the post-COVID world because, yeah, you have to be really careful because, you know, in a sense, us white people, you know, even though I'm mixed, I'll call my, I mean, I have white skin, um, us white people, you know, we're, we're doing pretty good. I don't think we, we realize how much the rest of the world is is hurting in these times and yeah it really sucks too that you got pickpocketed i'm sorry that happened yeah. to you no but it, it it it's you know the walk during the walkabout so i had some other experiences similar um and then i had the few experiences in mexico city that were you know kind of rough but 
it gave me a, a new perspective. It put me in a position that I've never been in in my life before, which was a position where I wasn't in a dominant role. Like, um, let me try to explain that. Like, I was the minority. Mm-hmm. Whereas in my day-to-day life, I never have to experience that. I don't know what that feels like. And yeah. to feel that just for a few days or for a few hours is so uncomfortable. I'm like, holy shit. There are people who, in my country who feel like this all the time, 24 yeah. hours a day. I'm like, this is that's got to be exhausting because I've only been feeling like this for like six hours and I don't like it at all. I want to go home, you know, back like I want to go back to the place where I know what's going on and where I can uh, navigate and maneuver in a and I, I understand, you know. But it was like I was the black person there almost. And uh, it was very eye-opening to be in that situation, to to feel. Um, I had another instance where the police were harassing me in Mexico. Now, this has happened to me before. Oh, yeah, they do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this one was particularly intense. They were, like, adamant that they were going to take me to jail. And I was like, no, dude, I'm not going to go to jail. Like, I'm going to, here, I'll give you guys some pesos, whatever, let's handle this. And they're at, they're like, no, you're going, and I was doing, like, literally nothing. Um, But they kept being, they were kept being so pushy. And anyways, I finally, like, talked my way out of the situation. But that even, like, threw me off even more because I was like, dude, I am totally alone here. The police are not going to help me, Um, you know, it. It, it kind of exacerbated that feeling of being powerless. And for me, I think that was a good thing to experience, you know, because you can read about it and you can kind of, you can know about it, but understanding the way that it feels is a different, it, it, it changes it for you. And I, you know, and for me, that's one of the first few times in my life where I've been in the situation to feel that way that I was uh, not in the majority that I was not in control of the situation and I wasn't so it was a good lesson for me to learn but very uncomfortable at times well I think the hardest thing is that our society you know the minute we put up borders we created separation and division and I think, you know, hopefully in the future, we'll, we'll move into a world that's more borderless so that we can all intermix. And it's sad because, you know, when I brought um, the, well, so at Burning Man in 2019, I brought the Zulu tribe from South Africa. And my intention was to bring um, the Ga tribe from Ghana and then two uh, Bwiti elders, Mbilu and Nizami Davanga from Gabon. And we were going through the visa process. And sadly, the United States is very prejudiced. You know, any country that is Muslim, which is, you know, doesn't necessarily mean you're a threat to the United States, um, they won't get visas. And so sadly, we miss out on a lot of the opportunity to connect to elders in the African cultures, 
because, you know, we, our country is just so backwards in the way that they look at things and, you know, using it in the name of safety. And I'm not saying whether it's safe or unsafe. Um, I just think the cost to society is so high when we look at the idea that the reason we feel different when we're in a mixed environment where we're the lesser is because we've set up a system where we're basically like rats in a cage, you know, like here's all the, here's this country full of all these white rats and here's this country from with all these brown rats and here's this country with all these calico rats and so on and so forth. And so mm-hmm. it, it sucks for us yeah. because I think if we were more immersed in that, then I think we wouldn't have, you know, those feelings of, of discomfort. Yeah. And I think, you know, the whole COVID situation has exacerbated that because when I was in Mexico last year, it was relatively early in the COVID thing. It was still several months in, but I don't think the full weight of the situation had had really hit everyone. And it was like now returning to Mexico, the tension there was like more palpable. Like you, mm-hmm. you could just feel it like... Not 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 just because I'm white or a tourist. It's like the whole city was on edge, you know, because people are losing their jobs, losing their livelihoods. And now, you know, you have gringo tourists walking your street. Of course, there's going to be some resentment and some animosity there for people who are barely struggling, you know, to get by to, to feed their families. And you have uh, people just visiting their city in the middle of a worse pandemic in, in human history, arguably. So yeah, it, that all makes sense to me. Um, in hindsight, so I had to think about it for a while because at first I'm just like, why the fuck were they mean to me in Mexico? And that, you know, after like looking at it with some nuance and and considering the reasons why it was a little bit more of a rough experience, I'm like, yeah, given the state of the world, that kind of makes sense right now. And and I'm sure it wasn't personal, you know. It's just like people are yeah. struggling. People are struggling and. Not everyone is having a, a, an easy time right now, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, just in light of all the things that have happened in the world, um, you know, I think anyone who has more power than someone else, I think the best thing to do is to practice humility as much as possible because, you know, just understanding that, it's so easy to project on anyone. Like if you're experiencing a hardship, you know, you don't want to feel your own pain of, you know, maybe it meaning that you're a failure or maybe it meaning that your country's a failure or your government's a failure or whatever it is. And so you can project that onto other people. And so I think, yeah, the more that we can just be super humble and just have compassion, for everyone and what they're what they're going through because yeah I mean I think that it's going to take some time for us to get into equality but we are moving towards a more egalitarian world and I think we also have to look at it from that perspective because you know like a lot of the reason America is so far ahead is because of these corporations you know, taking advantage of countries where labor is cheaper and kind of perpetuating them, those circumstances being in place. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. Um, I would like to talk if you have time. I know I've kept you here for about an hour. Do you have more time, or you got what's going on yeah, in your life? Fine. Okay, cool. Um, I want to know a little bit more about iboga because of all of the medicines that I'm aware of and that I've tried and and that I've used. Iboga is the probably the most obscure to me, and I think to most people, it's kind of only recently. I mean, I guess it depends on the circles you're in, but it seems to me it's only recently kind of made its debut on the, in the in the psychedelic culture. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm because I'm curious to, you know, I'm 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 an explorer, so I'm curious to try all of these things for myself. Um, and so I'm curious as to what the ceremony looks like, as to what the experience is like, because I've heard so many different things. It's kind of almost legendary. And you don't really get a good, I haven't gotten a good solid feel for, for what it entails. Can you kind of describe a ceremony? Um, and I know there are different traditions and, and different ways of doing it, but uh, can you can you kind of speak to that a little bit? Yeah, um, I mean, the first thing I want to say as a preface is like, do not buy Iboga on the internet and do it at home. It's the worst idea ever. I had people at the clinic when I worked at Crossroads who were like the psychonauts of psychonauts, like literally, you know, people that would like give themselves IM, like 5-MeO-DMT and crazy like stuff and, and ended up in the hospital because of experimenting with Iboga. It's a serious medicine. It takes a lot of training And I humbly say that whenever I do my work, I don't give anyone any iboga until I've seen an EKG from them that says that their heart is in healthy condition. And I have a doctor on site with me to make sure that if anything goes wrong, knock on wood, nothing has yet, but um, that they're there to kind of back me up in case there is some issue, you know, maybe it's an issue with breathing, maybe it's a heart issue. Um, These are not issues that come up frequently. I mean, in reality, the thing that really brings a lot of risk with Iboga is um, treatment for addiction, which is doing a flood dose of Abogaine, which is a very high dosage. And a lot of the people that are coming in from addiction Like, number one, they're in addiction, and they will sneak pills in with them. You know, like, they'll sneak in benzos, they'll sneak in meth, they'll sneak in anything in their shoe. And so you just don't know if they're going to go take something, and um, it could have an interaction. Um, With the psycho-spiritual setting, you don't have those same issues. Um, And so if you do a really proper screening... Usually it's probably the safest thing you can do because we're really um, putting safety first. You know, that's number one. Number two is that this medicine has some sustainability issues. And so, you know, you want to make sure that the medicine is coming from a good source. There's, um, I don't know if the statistic I can't even say the word today, uh, is right. 
Uh, but I think, like, I heard that, like, 90% of the medicine going out of Gabon is um, being trafficked by elephant poachers. And, um, you know, and then there's a black market for Iboga. Um, you know, a kilo of Iboga is about 4,000 euro. Wow. So it's expensive medicine. And so, you know, we want to be really careful because... This is a serious medicine and it's a serious spirit and you don't want to be taking something, you don't want to take medicine that's pissed off. You know, if it's been poached out of the jungle, it's like, you know, it's not going to be as kind to you as medicine that, you know, has been raised by a tribe and sang music to and harvested in ceremony and given to someone who's had the proper initiations and received a blessing from the teacher that they can use that medicine in ceremony. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people out there practicing that that's not the case. So, you know, you want to do your due diligence before even stepping into that. And in terms of the ceremony, I'm going to speak to you. So I'm an initiate of, of Bhuti. I was first initiated five years ago. I've been working with Iboga six years because I I worked at Crossroads um, and I started working there six years ago. When I work with the medicine, you know, just know that this medicine is used in initiatory rites. And those initiatory rites typically can be a three week to one month process where you take very large quantities of medicine. But in that time, usually that's about two days where you're doing the big ceremonies. There's massive amounts of preparations where you're getting uh, spiritual baths using sacred plants. You're taking plant vomitifs, which um, help you to purge darkness out of your body. You're doing a fulu, which are smoke baths, which is kind of like your own personal sweat lodge where you're, you're clearing, again, darkness out of you to prepare you for the initiation. And then following the initiation, there's outing ceremonies. And in some traditions, such as um, one of the traditions I'm initiated, Gonde Misoko, um, they have edika, which is a ceremony of blessing that is kind of like your completion ceremony, and it brings the mobondo, which is the grace, so that on your journey, you can have a, a blessed journey coming out of um, initiation. And that's like a really long process. Mm-hmm. Um, in To be a, a nima or a nima kambo, which are the ones that give the initiations, is about... 10 to 25 years of training. Wow. I'm not, I'm not, I've not been given the blessing to give initiations. But what I have been able, been given the blessing to do is to do healings, like psycho-spiritual healings. So I work with the Malingu, which means a patient who comes to me and they want healing with Iboga. And we work um, usually over five to six days. And we work with the medicine for two nights. And the two nights are called death and rebirth. And so the first night is like a deep cleansing. You know, we're opening up the ceremony with ritual, um, carrying the altars and the lineages for which we've been initiated. And with that, 
when you get initiated, you create a link to every ancestor in that lineage from the beginning of time. So when I open up that altar and people have seen, like a woman told me, she saw this before, literally this doorway opens and all these ancestors are coming running out of it. You know, not everyone can see it, but they're there in the ceremony. And in Buiti, we also um, work with the genies and the genies are the spirits of the plants, uh, the mermaids, also the spirits of the water. And they assist us in the healing process and what they're doing. And I literally can watch them. It like blows my mind. They're literally running around the room, cleaning things off of people. And you might see this like wisp of this like blue energy or this green energy or this like magenta ball. And they're just like running around the room, just like, you know, taking away this, moving this, doing this. And they're also talking to me and telling me where I need to go and who I need to look at and support um, during the ceremony. So are you also under, are you also consuming iboga during that? Like, are you in the same headspace? Yes. I take a very small amount. If you, if you, when you take large quantities of iboga, um, you can't even walk. And so I wouldn't be able to do much of anything if I, obviously, if I take too much medicine. Um, but um, the group, people in the group are taking pretty, pretty high doses. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I saw that. I, did, I uh, was sat in a, a Native American peyote ceremony one time. And uh, I took my dose, which was like at the recommendation of the roadman. And it was a pretty solid dose. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like an ayahuasca level experience, but it was intense. And I saw the guys performing the ceremony, and I saw the doses they were taking, which was quite a bit larger than mine. And they still like, it, and I don't know if you know this about the Native American peyote ceremony, but it's very like structured and ritualistic, and like certain times have to do certain things, and then there's a time for this and a time for that. And, and there's like four or five people involved in the kind of curation of this ceremony. But they're mm -hmm. all, they're all got to be under, you know, a pretty ser a pretty heavy psychedelic dose. And they are operating as if like, they just, they just not a single issue, you know. It's very impressive for me just to be like, man, these guys are... They know what they're doing. Like, <laughs> this is not their first rodeo. <laughs> well, the, the idea with working with the medicine, it's not about, you take the medicine so that you can see, you know, like um, it gives you the ability to kind of doctor um, and, and be able to attend to people and help them and support them. And so it's really so that you can be in better communication with each person. Mm -hmm. But in terms of how the medicine affects you, if you've done your work, if you've done your initiations, if you've cleaned yourself, you shouldn't be taken out by the medicine. You know, it's really when you have stuff to clear that it that it takes you out. And, you know, for me, you know, I've sat with the medicine probably like 30 times because, you know, that's what's required to really understand how to work with the medicine um, and to really be able to, to serve others in the way that I do and to really understand that process coming from the place, the right place, which is, is the place of really 
um, an inner alchemical process of really checking in on things and following spiritual protocols, asking permission, opening, you know, the doorways properly and closing them properly at the end, all of those things. Um, and if you don't do those properly, um, it can get you in trouble. And so, um, really when you do the work yourself, when you clean yourself, um, it allows you to function in that space. And it goes very much back to even the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You know, they talk about this idea of, you know, being aware when you're dying, being awake when you're dying, because it allows you to be able to navigate in death where you get to go next. Like you can have consciousness, you can hold your consciousness together. And so... I really feel that when you have done that work yourself, you're able to navigate the spiritual world and 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 keep your wits about yourself and not like not lose your grounding. Sure, sure, sure. Um, one thing I'm curious about for as far as uh, Iboga goes, um, I wouldn't consider myself an addict. I wouldn't, uh, you know, of course, as just as a human being, we all have traumas, things we things that should be healed. Um, but I've always kind of taken an approach to, to, to plant medicine and particularly like other cultures, ceremonial medicine, as like an exploratory or like in a curious standpoint. Um, I was kind of concerned about that with ayahuasca because I did a lot of research and I understood the like, you know, I, I felt like I understood the, the potential risks and also my intention. Um, I, 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 my intention was kind of in question because I was like, really, should you be going to like this other country and undergoing this like very sacred spiritual rite with these people because you're curious? Like, is that okay to do? So I kind of battled with that. And it turned out that when I was there in the experience, the grandmother was like speaking to me, telling me, yes, you made the right choice. Like this was the, you needed this, like you, you made the right decision to come here. Um, it would. What do you think about Iowa? Uh, pardon me, Iboga in that like intentional sense, like someone who's not coming to to help alleviate a, a drug addiction or substance addiction, or someone who is who is more curious, um, it, to, just to have that experience. Is that does that intention hold up? Yeah, I mean, I think that what is really important with any medicine is a couple of things. One, understanding the why behind your work. If we're jumping around from one peak experience to the next, and we're not actually integrating that, then we're doing the medicine a disservice. And the less respectful we are to the medicine, the likelihood of it kicking our butt <laughs> the next time is, uh, I mean, it, it could potentially put you in that position. Um, I think that ultimately most people in Western culture, you know, aside from a few people um, maybe that have pre-existing conditions that would eliminate them from working with these kinds of sacred medicines, um, I think most people do need some of this work just because we have such a history of a mass trauma 
and we lack community. And so being in experiences where we recognize, wait a second, there's a web of life connecting all of us together. The reason that that person feels me purging, feels a release, is because we're all interconnected and we forget that and we create separation between ourselves, between people that have different colors of skin, between different wealth aspects, all of these things that we create separation and we're all just one organism. And the only difference between me and you is the circumstances that we were born into and but ultimately we're all the same we all have the same heart you know we all have the same red blood through our veins and so i think like it's so important for us to start to kind of remember that and to and i think it's only through those mystical experiences that we can really truly recognize that but do i feel like everyone should do yoga no, I don't. I think you have to be ready for it. I think you have to have a significant amount of experience. Most importantly, like you are going to enter into the darkest darkness that you've ever experienced because it's your darkness that you have to face within yourself. The things that sometimes seekers are avoiding by seeking other things or, you know, doing other things. Um, and you're faced with that and you're gonna have to look at it. And so the reality is um, we have to have practices to be able to center ourselves, to be able to connect to our heart, to not get so mired down by the movie that's playing that we forget who we are and why we're here. And so the better foundational practices that you have, the better you're going to do. I mean, people go into psychosis on Iboga all the time. You know, when people, I mean, knock on wood again, like, you know, it's been very few that I've had to deal with, but um, it happens. And, you know, sometimes all it really is, you can't do anything for the person except sit with them and be chill and wait for them to come back to their senses. And that can take time. It could take 24 hours. It could take longer. And um, that's not a fun experience um, for anybody. I mean, of course, it's exactly what they needed. And it's funny how many people I've seen have that experience who want to do the medicine again, you know? Yeah. Uh, like, it's really hard. Um, and so what I would say is, like, know what you're getting into it's you're gonna take medicine two nights but you're probably not gonna sleep for like four days if you're in that state for four days that's when people sometimes start to get like kind of in those ungrounded thoughts of like oh am i ever coming back and you know yeah. so that's why you have to have that grounding i would say like for myself the best thing i ever did before I did Iboga was a 10-day Vipassana retreat where I didn't have to talk for 10 days and I was in complete silence for 10 days. That type of like energy of being in a marathon type initiation that's long, even though to me Vipassana is not that difficult, I think it kind of is a good framework to start in and just see how well you do like if you can because you really have to understand how to connect to your breath how to use your breath as a tool to not let the mind get out of control because what happens is 
when you take this medicine, your brain is shut down for repairs. And so it's your breath that keeps you in your body instead of in your head. Um, and anything you try to do in your brain, it's not going to work in its normal way. And you're not going to be able to control it. So it's just going to drive you crazy. So you're going to have to just be in the moment and just really be diligent about focusing on your breath. If you're not like deep in the journey, like I'm talking about the long stints in between when you're still like very much on the medicine, but you're not in that deep like journeying space, um, you're, you're going to be sitting for a long time with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And you know, that's that, that just to, just to finish up, um, I went to ayahuasca with the curiosity, but when I got there, she just, you know, it just opened me up. And she mm. was like, look, whatever it took to get you here, you know, if it was, if we needed to, if, if it was just your curiosity that brought you here, then it doesn't matter because you're here now. And, you know, it wasn't like it was over and I was like, okay, I'm not curious anymore. It was like, holy yeah. shit. Like, that was so far beyond my curiosity. Like, that changed, like, the way that I see reality and and life and death in general like completely altered core tenets of my belief system in like you know in just a handful of of sessions so uh yeah she told me she was like yeah you came here because you were curious but we wanted you here so you know you're where you were supposed to be which was crazy i I think that a good a good way to approach it is to connect with the medicine like you know just say a little something to ayahuasca if you're feeling called if you're getting a hit about ayahuasca and just say give me a sign show me a sign that i'm that i'm ready for this work show me and then look for like real signs like you know and you'll know when it's a sign you'll feel it down in your whole core and every cell of your body you might even get like goosebumps or chills but you'll know and yeah, so, like, I, I was getting, I was probably getting that call for a couple of years and I kept kind of putting it off, you know, like, eh, yeah. it was like, like just kind of synchronistic little things. Like I would think about it and then it, I would, it would come in back into my purview and I would be like, eh, you know, yeah, one of these days. And then I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember there was one night I was at work working overnight and some, some, some one of these little synchronicities happened. And I just said, you know what? I'm going to do it right now. I'm just going to book a flight and a, and a retreat and just put it on the books and then we'll go do it when it's time. And I did and that's how it went down. And, and But yeah, it was like I kept getting these little like – I like the first time I heard the term ayahuasca, I was like, what is that? And then you know, I did some research, figured out what it is. And I'm like, okay, this is odd that I haven't come across this before given my you know, history of – being interested in counterculture and plant medicines and things. And this was probably, I don't know, seven years ago, seven or eight years ago. And uh, so I was like, okay, just kind of file that away and maybe, you know, we'll see how it goes. And then over the next few years, it would just be like every now and then it would be like a little, hey, remember that ayahuasca thing? Here's something about it. Like, check it out. Look into it. And then it started to get really, really strong and intense, so, you know, up until like leading up to the year that I decided to do it. It would be like all the time I would just be like, why? 
everyone is talking about ayahuasca now? Like, why does this keep coming into my my viewpoint so much? Like, and I was like, I, something is going on here. And I, yeah, I think I was right. <laughs> it sounds like you definitely had a calling and maybe in hindsight, you might have even labeled it as curiosity, but like it was something deeper than that. Yeah, it was like, so. it was the trail of breadcrumbs were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're I following think so. them. Yeah. I think so too. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you, what projects you want people to know about, uh, what you've got coming up, things like that, social media links, all that kind of stuff. Of course, I'll put it all in the show notes so that people can have access to it. Yes, thank you, Clinton, so much. I'm so grateful that we got to have this conversation today. It was really juicy. We went into a lot of different little portals. Um, my website is psychedelicjourneys.com. My nonprofit is ancestralheart.com, which is really about reciprocity and respect for the, the indigenous traditions and the medicines connected with them and how we can you know, build that framework of kind of integrating it, you know, our society, Western society, um, and, and these cultures in a non-invasive way. And then, um, my Instagram is psychedelic journeys and, um, that's it. Did I miss anything? Mm, from what I've delved into? No, I think that's the, those are the basics right there. That's pretty good. Um, Yay. so Thank you, Trisha. Thanks so much for being patient with me. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, maybe in the future we will uh, reunite for a different, another episode or somewhere in the real world. That would be cool, too. Yeah, I would love that. Thank <laughs> you. Thank thanks you a lot, Trisha. I really appreciate it. Have a beautiful day. All right. Thank you. You do the same. Take care. Bye. Ladies and gingerbread men, the great and powerful Trisha Eastman of Psychedelic Journeys. Thank you so much, Trisha. Um, we, like I mentioned in the episode, we kind of played email tag, but we got it together, and I'm so glad we did. Uh, she was a, a, a pleasure to speak with and to uh, have her share her insights into uh, what I would consider one of the least known or... Um, uh, least uh, lesser known psychedelic uh, compounds, Iboga or Ibogaine, the actual uh, molecule. So thank you again, Trisha. Beyond that, guys, I will uh, remind you one final time to check us out on patreon.com slash psychedelicast for $3 a month. You're going to get a lot of extra content. You're going to help support the show. Um, it makes me feel good. We lost some subscribers, some of our original OG subscribers we lost over the last month, and I kind of get it. Um, I'm not gonna, I mean, it kind of hurt my feelings, dude, like to be totally honest, but you know, this is the game we play and I get it. Um, so I can't really, you know, I'm, I'm not taking it personally, but yeah, it kind of sucks to see like some of the, the original, uh, founding members of the Psychonaut community leave. Um, I can kind of see why though. I haven't been super active in posting a lot of like, extra content but just to run this free version of the show and do interviews and all that is a lot of work and time and effort so i still feel good about asking three dollars a month of of patreon patrons so join us there www.patreon.com slash psychedelicast for free exclusive content including the video version of this show 
which usually I upload the video versions at least a week to two weeks early for patrons. So you'll get uh, access to these chats well before anyone else does. Beyond that, guys, uh, follow us on all the social media. Subscribe to the show on all your podcatchers. Rate the show, review the show, leave us some stars. That helps us gain visibility and gain new listeners and followers and uh, spread the good word about the uh, psychedelic experience. So I certainly appreciate that. Engage with us on the social medias um, and uh, tell your friends and fam, dude. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Let's do our quote. Let's get out of here. We had a kind of a long one today. I wonder if... I haven't done one this long in a while, but... uh, the, the conversation was was just uh, rolling right along, so we did it. We, we went a little bit over my usual uh, quota, which is fine by me and was fine with Trisha. So, anywho, let's do a quote and let you guys go. And I'll leave you guys with a fitting uh, African proverb for today, short and sweet. Unknown uh, author, but uh, seems fitting. The earth is a beehive. We all enter by the same door. Psychedelicasters, thank you so much for joining us once again. As always, it's my pleasure to bring you these episodes and interviews. You guys are the reason why I do this, so thank you so much. And as always, I appreciate you in spending your time with us in the attempt to pry open the third eye. We'll see you next time. Take good care of yourselves.